0: Fifteen. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck.
1: Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. Hope everyone had a very happy, safe, and fulfilling. Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Thank you so much for making us a part of your Wednesday afternoon. Welcome in to the Mass and All Access podcast. Your host Bobby Blanco here. If you are tuning in live on the Mass and Nationals Facebook page or YouTube channel, you can see that I am all all alone up here on the desk. Amy Jennings is away for the week, so you're just stuck with me for the next hour. But I fear not because I have brought in reinforcements like Andrew Stevenson off the bench. I have brought in Mark Zuckerman of Massinsports.com joining me via zoom. Mark, it's great to see you. It's been a while, uh, obviously a very interesting and busy time of the year, but first off, how was your holiday?
0: Very good, Bobby. Thank you. It was nice to get together with some family that we hadn't all gotten together with in quite a long time. It made for a very loud, but enjoyable evening together. Hope you had a nice one too. And, uh, Hey, you know what? I hope I can come off the bench as well as Andrew Stevenson does, because he's really good at that. Hopefully you don't need me as a starter, though, playing every day, because as <laughs> we've seen, not as good in that role. So maybe this will just be a pinch hit appearance for me.
1: Well, you're a perfect starter on the website. On the podcast, we only need you for emergency situations um, like today when with Amy being unavailable. But right off the bench, here you go. Uh, no one else is more equipped to talk about what we're going to talk about today. A lot to get to. It's been a crazy 48 hours, Mark. I mean, ever since Sunday night, actually more so. Uh, this baseball has been up in a frenzy. A lot of free agent signings, um, some waiver claims. These teams are trying to get their roster set before the uh, looming uh, possible uh, lockout coming tonight when the CBA expires uh, at midnight tonight, Thursday morning. But first, let's talk about some of the moves that have been made uh, before we talk, talk about baseball in general. The big one that Nationals fans want to talk about, and and uh, and obviously was the Max Scherzer to uh, the New York Mets deal. We just watched his press conference live on MLB Network being introduced via Zoom as a New York Met. I know Nationals fans are very upset. Everyone who cheers for the red, white, and blue in D.C. did not want to See Max in the blue and orange of the New York team. Everyone expected him also to stay on the West Coast, but here we come signing a mega contract for three years, $130 million with the New York Mets. Mark, your initial reaction to Max going to New York and uh your thoughts on the um, the division rival of the of the Nationals and their moves so far this offseason. Well,
0: the initial reaction, like I think like most of us, was shock because or even disbelief and thinking he's not going to the Mets. This is the Mets trying to put it out there, or even Scott Boris trying to put it out there that they're making a huge offer and making a play at Max Scherzer. And just from having covered enough of these over the years and see how they operate, it very often is a ploy to try to get another team, like say the Dodgers, to up their offer, to start to panic and say, well, hey, we can't let him go to New York. We better increase our offer. And then he ends up uh, going back there in the end. So I really felt like that was the playbook And where he was going. And then once it became clear that, no, this isn't a ploy, he's actually going to the Mets. Then once that sort of initial shock wore off, it kind of came to the realization of, yeah, I'm not all that surprised. And the reason is this, they were offering him not just more money than anyone his age has ever gotten, but more money per year than any baseball player has ever gotten. And they're going to give it to him over three years. I don't know that I ever really thought Max Scherzer was going to get three guaranteed years at age 37. I think all along I felt like he'll probably get two. And even that was a stretch for someone of his age. So when you have the Mets swooping in and giving him $43 million a year for three years, they're going to be paying him that when he's 40 years old. And you're Max Scherzer, nobody else is coming close to that offer. Are you really going to say no to that? Especially against the backdrop of what we're going to be talking about, the labor you know, uh, uh, negotiations. Max is huge with the union, and he's always going to do in the back of his mind what he thinks is best for players, not just himself, but for everyone. And at this time in particular, it wouldn't be the best look among his constituency to turn down a bigger offer, a much bigger offer from one team to go sign for less money with somebody else. So I get it. I get why he's doing it. Doesn't mean we have to like it. Doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable watching him in a Mets uniform, and it's really not going to be comfortable watching him almost certainly make his Mets debut against the nationals in the opening series next year at Citi field.
1: Yeah. And then his second uh, possible start could come at nationals park against the nationals. Um, And I, you know, want to talk about this too, because this is not a Bryce Harper situation, Mark. I mean, the the nationals traded max, of course, away to the Dodgers got prospects back along with Trey Turner uh, last July, you know, he came here he won a world series. Every cent of that 7-year deal he signed back in 2015 was completely worth it for Washington. And you know, now he's the top one of the top right-handed uh, starting pitchers on the market a future Hall of Famer of course teams are going to be interested in him and of course we know Max how competitive he is he's going to want to go to a, a competitor a team and try to win another ring so like you said I don't blame Max either for taking this deal it's a, it's a record-breaking deal and going to a team he must like what the Mets have already done this offseason signing a bunch of major contracts to guys that are going to be contributors to their, their roster and they're going to try to hope to compete for a, a, a title And at least make a playoff appearance. And, you know, Mark, I think this was always going to be a possibility once Steve Cohen officially became the owner of the Mets, right? He's one of, if not the richest owners in baseball now. And he has said publicly, he's not going to spare any expenses. He's a lifelong Mets fan. He wants to see this team go back to being competitive um, and and, and winning championships. They haven't won one since the eighties. They're they're now the only NL East team that has not won a world series uh, since the turn of the century. So this was always going to be a possibility. Once Cohen took over the Mets and was basically ready to write blank checks to any player he felt was necessary to build a competing team. So this shouldn't be too much of a surprise. I don't blame either side really for doing this move, especially not Max taking, you know, the contract that he was offered and and the Mets really giving him that much money because they're in desperation mode. They're trying to win and, and they haven't been able to get to that point in a very long time.
0: Well, I'm glad to use that word desperation because that's what I'm thinking here too. Not just with the Mets, but look at what the biggest moves over the last several days have been and who are the teams that are all, all of a sudden spending all this money. It's teams that are desperate to make that next leap. It's teams that haven't quite gotten where they want to get to, whether that means getting to the playoffs or getting it far once they reach the playoffs. So it's teams like the Mets, it's the Rangers who have spent a ton of money out of nowhere, it seems like, for a team that has been mired in last place the last couple of years. It's the Tigers who feel like they're now on the verge of making a big move. So I think what's interesting there is there's a handful of teams that feel like now is the time to strike, and they maybe have more motivation to do so than other teams that have won more recently or maybe aren't feeling quite the same pressure Uh, to either try to make the playoffs or win a title or something like that. Now, with the Mets, like you said, it's been a long time for them. But the one part of this that I think is a little disappointing in my mind, uh, from Max's standpoint, is this. We know he is the ultimate competitor. And we know, and he said it, and I believe him when he says that right now, the most important thing to him is trying to win another title. He got his in 2019 with the Nationals. Now he wants to win more, of course. That's who he is. Now, do the Mets give him the best chance? of the teams that were in the mix, I don't know. We feel like every year we talk about this going into the season with the Mets. We say, well, if everything comes together, yes, this is a team that can win. But there's a lot of combustible parts there. And as we've seen, things very often go south for them. So you could say the Dodgers are more of a sure thing to get back to the playoffs than maybe the Mets are at this point. So I think that part of it's a, a little bit disheartening is that it's hard to look Max in the eye right now and believe him when he says, that winning is number one on his mind. Clearly, this had to do with some money. Now, he didn't sign this contract with um, you know the Kansas City Royals, so he's not going somewhere that has no hope of winning. This is a Mets team that is trying to win, but it's a team that's had all kinds of dysfunction. They just hired their third general manager in the last year. They don't have a manager right now. He doesn't know who his manager is going to be. You would think that's something that Max Scherzer would care about, right? <laughs> so maybe it all works out, but I think that's also why it's interesting. There is an opt-out after year two in this deal. And I'm sure he and Scott Boris wanted to put that in there just in case things don't go well. (laughs) And if after two years, things are a mess there, he could say, okay, hang on, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go try to win somewhere else while I still have a chance before I turn 40. Or you can also look at it and say, if he wins two more Cy Young awards and all of a sudden he could be worth 50 million a year, he can get a better deal two years from now.
1: Yeah, it definitely kind of screams like Max is taking a gamble a little bit on himself. You know, he still thinks he has a lot left in the tank. He can help this team reach the promised land. um, Like he did with the nationals, but you know, they're obviously, like you said, the Mets, like I always like to say the Mets, Mets sometimes. And more often than not, they haven't been in the playoffs since losing the wild card game in 2016. Um, And they've been very far from making the playoffs. They haven't really been in the mix in a couple of years either. Uh, Jacob deGrom, had to battle a lot of injuries last year. Max has his own injury history. They didn't get the production out of Francisco Lindor that they thought they were going to after signing him to a long-term deal last year as well. So there's a lot of moving parts with that Mets team. And I agree. I think the Dodgers on paper give Max a better chance to get back to the postseason and make a run at the title. But maybe the Dodgers weren't willing to throw up $43 million a year for him for three more years because they have their own, you know, they were trying to sign Corey Seager at the time. They have Trey Turner looming next year. Um, they have a lot of other options going, even though they have also have a very rich owner that likes to dish out a lot of cash. So I, I agree with you. It, it's There is a level of competitiveness. You know, the Mets on paper have a good roster. It just we've never seen it come to fruition in the past what five years. Um, you know they made that one wild card and got smoked by the, the by the Giants. And now you know I, I don't like I said I don't blame him for taking the biggest contract that was dished out to him uh, right before we're about to head into a lockout.
0: And what's the difference between the Dodgers and the Mets right now? The Dodgers just won a World Series yeah. after a long wait a couple of years ago. Maybe that motivation that desperation like we're talking about isn't quite there to say yeah, we're going to go all the way to three years and $43 million a year on an aging pitcher. Whereas the Mets, they are in desperation mode. They're desperately trying to win right now. I think that's the difference.
1: Yeah, and then you also look at the... competitiveness of the division I mean the Nationals might be the worst team in the National League East next year because they're on a rebuild the Marlins have made some moves they're on the upswing of their own rebuild the Braves of course just won the World Series Philly still has a reigning MVP in Bryce Harper Uh, they signed JT Romuto one of the best catchers to a long-term deal they're trying to get back to the postseason as well and look at the West I mean the Rockies the Diamondbacks are all kind of you know, of the bottom half of the division, we know the giants had the best record in baseball last year, but they've lost some parts, um, this off season. And, and the, you know, who knows if the Padres can put it all together with Bob Melvin at the head. And so on paper, it would seem like he does have the best chance out West, but he had to take the money, which I don't blame any player for taking more money when it's offered to you like that.
0: Yeah. And you know, as much as we always want to say that these guys are going where they want to win, that they're going to the towns that they want to play in and even more than that we want to believe that Max Scherzer is saying I can't go to the Mets because I'd be playing the Nationals now. Right. But that I couldn't do that to the team. Now, I hate to say it, but it doesn't work that way. These guys are professionals. They are they know it's a business. They compete against former teammates all the time. They move around from team to team. You know, remember Max Scherzer has already been with the Diamondbacks, the Tigers, the Nationals, the Dodgers, And now the Mets, this is part of the business for them as as much as we feel like it's a little stab in the back for the net towards the Nationals. In Max Scherzer's mind, that's not even crossing his mind. It's just the business. And I think he knows that the players on the Nationals, the front office with the Nationals, they aren't worried about that either. They don't think that he just turned their back on them, because let's also remember, we mentioned Bryce Harper earlier, the difference between this and that is the Nats were not making any effort to re-sign Max. Once they decided that they were going to sell at the trade deadline and start a rebuilding process, I know some people wanted to believe he was coming back here, not for the situation that they're in right now. Now, maybe two or three years from now, finish out his career, maybe they have a chance to win again, maybe. But right now, no, they weren't. And so the Nationals can't take this personally or feel like he betrayed them in any way. I understand why fans are going to be disappointed by it, and that's fair. But, you know, trust me, he didn't do this to get back at the Nats or even with the Nats in mind at all.
1: Yeah. And I think it's kind of funny now because, you know, for years, Mark, you and I were talking about and Nationals fans and everyone who covers this team. But being like, OK, this is the year that Max Scherzer finally regresses. OK, no, it's this year that he finally and he has it. And he, he was a top three finisher in the Cy Young last year. Uh, and now it's funny. that The Nationals fans are really hoping, OK, this is the year he has to show some regressions because we might see him 10 times a season.
0: Yeah, boy, um, I, it eventually it's going to happen. But I mean, if you're giving him a three-year deal, you must be feel, feeling pretty confident right. that it's not happening anytime soon. I mean, let's, let's look at it that way. In a worst-case scenario, if this is, you know, if his best days are behind him, oh, my God, how much are the Mets paying him now yeah. to do that for them? Um, but knowing Max, the physical shape that he's in, the competitor that he is, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Maybe he's not Cy Young, Max Scherzer, for the next three years. He's going to be awfully good.
1: He's going to be pretty good. Let's just hope that Max Scherzer does not throw the first no-hitter against the Nationals in the Nationals history because that will sting a lot uh, for the Nationals fans to witness, especially after he threw a no-hitter against the Mets in a curly W hat. Um, All right, let's talk about guys that are actually now on the Nationals roster, no longer uh, moving away from guys that are no longer here. Like I said at the top of the show, it's been pretty quiet offseason for the Nationals, even when these past 48 hours, a lot of teams are scrambling to sign guys before this looming lockout. But they did sign Cesar Hernandez, who National fans will remember from his time in Philadelphia, to a one-year deal. $4 million guaranteed, plus incentives, as you reported on com. A little less than he made last year between uh, Cleveland and the Chicago White Sox. He made $5 million last year. It seems like a depth piece, a veteran move. You know, It kind of takes the, the role of Starling Castro that uh, after last year, that veteran infielder that can move around the diamond. Uh, what did you make of this kind of uh, late late night signing last night on Tuesday night?
0: Well, yeah, I think this is the kind of guy that the Nationals are going to be going after. Uh, a veteran to maybe help ease the youngsters in and provide some guidance toward uh, for them. But somebody who does have some value and part of his value is that he can do a lot of different things. Now, he's been a second baseman most of his career, but he has played shortstop. He has played third base. He's even played center field. Some, not a lot. He's primarily a second baseman. So what I'm most curious here is to see how is he used and what is the domino effect on others? Is he their new second baseman? And if so, what happens to Luis Garcia? Is he now their shortstop? Which means Alcides Escobar, who the only other free agent that they've signed this winter, and that was a re-signing uh, just for $1 million, is he now going to the bench? Or is Hernandez maybe a, there to challenge Carter Kibu at third base for playing time, or is he going to be the Josh Harrison bounce around everywhere, super utility guy uh, and do almost anything, or is he on the bench and the other guys are staying in their positions? I mean, the salary, because it's 4 million, doesn't sound like a lot, but compared to what most of their players are going to be making this year, it's four times as much as Escobar is making So that leads me to believe that he is going to be getting some significant playing time for them. So my hunch is that we may see him penciled in as a second baseman, which means Luis Garcia could get a shot at shortstop, which is his natural position, is what he came up in through the minor leagues. Though the little bit we've seen of him, he's been better at second than at short. So I don't know if they really feel like that, but may now may be the time to give him a look there and see. And now Escobar is sort of your fallback, but it could go a lot of different ways. And I think. Until we get a clear picture of everything that they're going to do this winter, and it may be a while till we know that, given uh, the transactions uh, you know, hold that we're about to go into for some period of time, uh, it's going to be hard to really know what their intentions are here. But you know, they made this move before the CBA expires. They paid him a decent amount of money. That says to me that they think highly of him, that he is going to be part of the close to a daily plan in one way or another.
1: Yeah, positive coming for uh, Hernandez is that he is coming off one of his best uh, seasons power-wise. Hit a career-high 21 home runs and 21 doubles in 149 games. He did not hit for average very well, only 232, but he's a switch hitter and a career 270 hitter with over 70 home runs and uh, 154 doubles and 335 RBIs, mostly with Philly, as uh, Nationals fans will remember. And he's a switch hitter, too, so that brings a little more versatility for David Martinez. If he is plays that bench role, that's versatility as a pinch hitter coming off the bench. Like you said, he plays it all around the diamond. The, the, the interesting part is going to be the domino effect he has and what this means for Luis Garcia and Carter Kibum. If he's coming in a second baseman and Luis moves a short, uh, that's an interesting move because Luis did grow up as a as a shortstop and Carter Kibum might, ha- might be able to hold on to that position at third base, but maybe not. And maybe he moves around the diamond and maybe that means Alcides Escobar goes somewhere else too and, and Carter's the odd man now. So it will be interesting to see it. And like you said, we won't know for sure until we see the full roster construction heading into spring training whenever that is um but uh, interesting pickup for uh, the nationals a 31 year old infielder and like you said making more money than most guys on that roster right now uh because of uh, his veteran status the nationals also added two. and then well, let me make one other
0: one other real quick yeah. point here which is and i think you have to look at this for anybody they sign any veteran they sign this winter, especially to a one-year deal is those are tradable pieces come next july right So if the Nats are still in this rebuilding mode and they're not contending, you now have pieces you can trade to contenders and get even more prospects in return. So it's another reason why I think most of the moves you're going to see them make are those kind of short-term fixes. They help a problem right now. They help provide some depth, help some youngsters out. But those are also really marketable pieces next summer if you're looking to make moves at the trade deadline.
1: Right, Hernandez was just dealt this past summer from Cleveland to Chicago uh, because he would bring some versatility and and had some decent power numbers. Same situation could happen next July as well and that could help the Nationals booster that farm system uh, in the first official full season of this retooling whatever you want to call it. Speaking of boosting that farm system and and adding depth, the Nationals did add two other infielders. uh, One via a waiver claim from the Orioles, Lucius Fox. Can't wait to use Batman references with that guy. And then in a minor league contract to Richard Arunia, a former Blue Jay shortstop who spent all of last year at AAA. Uh, what do you know about these guys and are these just depth pieces or could they possibly contend for roster spots come spring training?
0: Well, first of all, I don't know. I was more of an Alfred guy. Maybe I'm old school. Alfred versus Lucius Fox. Okay. That's probably before your time even. You don't even remember who Alfred was to Batman. He was the original Lucius Fox.
1: No, I know. Uh, Al- the Alfred Pennyworth is... The guy, I mean, that's, that's, uh, okay. Michael King. in the dark. Okay. That's Michael right. Kane. I know.
0: Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair but right. As All right. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, look, these are depth moves, you know, let's be honest. I don't think they're looking at these as players who are going to receive significant amount of playing time, <clears throat> but I think what's important to remember, think back to last summer. When Trey Turner got hurt, Jordy Mercer was hurt. Uh, I think Carter Keeman was still a triple A and was hurt at the time. They did not have any middle infielders all of a sudden. And that's how you wound up with Alex Avila starting a game at second base. That didn't go well, obviously. They called up a guy, uh, Humberto Arteaga, for one game, if you remember. And then they went and acquired Alcides Escobar, was supposed to be a short-term, just get somebody in here with some experience. And he wound up as the starting shortstop after Trey Turner left. So they are trying to make sure they don't, Fall into that situation again by having some, um, you know, reasonably qualified backup infielders that can probably be at A AAA for them uh, and be called upon if needed. Now there could be a bench role for one of them, uh, depending on how things work out. Um, you know, the the guy from the Blue Jays has played in the big league some, and Lucius Fox has some, you know, interesting numbers. He's got some speed. He's got not that long. It was kind of considered a, a decent prospect, and always bounced around a, a lot. Since, So, you know, these are guys you're not planning around them, but they're guys that you want to have in your system to have available in case other things don't go right, because we saw what a big problem that was for the Nats in 2021.
1: Yeah, and both these guys bring even more versatility. Uh, Fox has played second base shortstop and even a little bit of center field. Um, and uh, Irina is a, has played shortstop and second base. And they're both also switch hitters to go along with Cesar Hernandez. So even more versatility, even more depth. Fox enters the national system as the number 25 overall ranked prospect per MLB pipeline. So that's adding to their their prospect depth. Um, and then you also mentioned uh, in your article on MassInSports.com, you know, Fox, it goes to the full man roster, but he does have an option left so the Nationals can send him down without risk losing him uh, next year. Urania signed a minor league contract so he's not on the 40-man roster, but if he is called up to the major league team, uh, they have to throw him through waivers first before they can option straight out to the minor league system.
0: Right, and that's kind of a key there. Ultimately, you would like to have guys with options that gives you options, as it were, which is why it's called that, Um, and uh, in Urania's case, they wouldn't be able to do that, so that might be a little bit of a negative in terms of if they ever got to a point they wanted to call him up, they'd have to be either sure that they were going to keep him for a while or be convinced that this is just a, a short term, get us through whatever period we're in right now. And then we're probably going to lose him after that. Uh, but in Fox's case, the fact that he still had an option was a nice benefit and honestly, kind of surprising that he's now gone through waivers a couple of times and been claimed by other teams when he still has options. Typically team wouldn't do that, but Uh, In the case of the Royals and the Orioles, they had 40-man roster spots that needed to open up, and so that's why he was available.
1: Yeah, uh, listening to the 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 O's Bros, as I like to call them, their podcast was just recorded a little bit ahead of ours, um, and they were talking about how the Orioles lost Lucius Fox to the Nationals, and they seemed to think that the Orioles thought they could squeeze him through, uh, sneak him through waivers, and no one would notice, but the Nationals seemed to notice and and scooped him up. Um, You know, I'm not saying that... these two guys are going to turn out to this player, but it reminds me of when the Nationals traded for a young shortstop by the name of Trey Turner and used his versatility across the field. You're not a switch hitter, but remember, he started his career at the Nationals in center field, of course, then moved to shortstop um, and and became one of the best shortstops in the game. That's not what I'm saying either of these guys will be, but you bring that versatility, you try them around the diamond, maybe they find a niche and and, and get more comfortable and are able to play some solid innings for you if they make it to the Major League uh, club and are are worth a roster spot and you know it just this is the part of the um uh the, the rebuild that i think nationals fans are going to have to get accustomed to you're going to learn a lot of new minor league names and they're going to be here for a season and they could be gone they could be here for a couple months and then they could be gone the nationals are just going to be trying a bunch of different guys and see what sticks and giving young guys that aren't getting opportunities elsewhere a chance here to make a name for themselves and maybe help with this team's future
0: so you heard it here first, everybody. You can go back and, and record this and save it. Bobby Blanco predicts that Lucas Lucius Fox will be the next trader.
1: It's literally but the, the opposite right? of what I just said.
0: <laughs> really? Oh that's not what I, I, not what I heard.
1: I said I'm not saying that. But it's similar. Sort of. <laughs>
0: Uh, I'll grant you that a little bit of that, sure.
1: (laughs) I'm just saying that this is what the Nationals are trying to do, right? They're trying to grab young pieces, add to the farm system, rebuild that system, give these guys a chance because they're not getting opportunities elsewhere, or maybe they're available and and the Nationals, we know how much Mike Rizzo trusts his scouts. I mean, he has eyes everywhere and someone must have told him, hey, this guy is worth a pickup or a look if he becomes available and they scooped up uh, both of these guys.
0: Yeah, look, you're right on the greater point here, which is, um, right now, everything they do is about trying to find who is going to be part of the next winning team in D.C. And the way you do that is you don't just go get blue chip prospects. and That's all that you have. You have to know that sometimes you find diamonds in the rough. So you take a chance on some somebody that one of your scouts likes, somebody that maybe you've looked at from afar for a few years and, and like some things about them. And you know, chances are they're not going to work out. But if one of them does pan out and become a big part of your future plan, then That's great. So many, if you look back at how the Nats acquired some players from their championship run, who at the time of their acquisition, we barely paid any attention to. It happens. It does happen like that. They're very minor moves, seemingly, that even the team themselves wouldn't necessarily think they were going to turn into what they did. And then lo and behold, they become really important parts of a a team that wins uh, division titles and ultimately the World Series.
1: Yeah, Trey Turner was a player to be named later in that trade with Joe Ross and the Padres. So, it happens. It doesn't always happen. It's very rare, but it happens. It could happen, just like in uh, Angels in the Outfield. Um, Other guys that we know for a fact are not going to be on the next championship roster because they were non-tendered yesterday. Wander Suero, Ryan Harper, and Mike Ford, a minor league guy. Non-tendered contracts. They are no longer with the organization. Uh, You wrote on your column on MadisonSports.com that there were only three sure things uh, in terms of guys being uh, tendered contracts. That was Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Tanner Rainey. Everyone else was kind of up in the air, you thought, or at least had less than 100% chance of being tendered a contract. Out of the 10 guys, only two of them uh, get non-tendered, along with uh, Mike Ford, uh, as, like I said, a minor league guy. The big name right there everyone wants to talk about is Wander Suero, of course, one of the longest tenured national right now on this team um, and, and, of course, it has made many appearances out of the bullpen for this club. Um, your reactions to the guys that they decide to let go and the guys that they did eventually tender contracts to? So, if I had to
0: guess, and I, I didn't you know, publicly state this, but if I had to guess and rank them, those 10 players over who was most likely to be non-tendered, I think Suero and Harper were probably one and two on my list. Unfortunately, it's not their you know, fault per se, but it's just the situation. So the way this works is all these players are now arbitration eligible. So their salaries are going to go up, at least under the current system. We don't know what the next system is going to look like exactly. But for now, everyone has to operate under the current rules. So if you're looking at Wander Suero and you're saying, here's a guy who at times has looked like an important part of a bullpen moving forward, and at times has just not been able to figure it out at all. We've talked for years now about the good swearrow and the bad swearrow and which one are you going to get? You never know with that. And this past year, we have got a lot more bad swearrow than good swearrow and they wound up sending him down to AAA. They called him up briefly to come back up. It didn't go well. They sent him back down, and he basically was a forgotten man by the end of the year. And that's unfortunate, but I think that was sort of an indicator of where he now fit within the organization's plans. I mean, look, that bullpen that season's end, was not filled with a whole lot of experience or a lot of effective pitching. And they could have put Juan or Suero in that group and they chose not to. So I think that told you a little bit right there. So it's unfortunate. Like you said, I don't know if people realize just how long he'd been around. They signed him in 2010 as a teenager out of the Dominican Republic. Took him eight years through their system before he finally made his debut in 2018. Was a part of the 2019 team. Got a World Series ring. Again, at times looked like pretty good. He made 78 appearances that year tops on the team. He's eighth all time in relief appearances in club history. Yeah. So, I mean, this is somebody we've seen a lot, and that doesn't even include all the times that he warmed up and didn't come into the game, yeah. which is more than a few as well. So um, it's unfortunate. You hope that he gets a chance somewhere else and that he can figure it out because there's something there, you know, there is some talent there. He just has not been able to harness that consistently. Uh, and I think the Nats got to a point where they said, Even if we think he might pan out, ultimately, we don't feel like spending a million dollars or whatever he would make through arbitration is worth it for a guy that we're not even sure makes our opening day roster. So I think that's what happened there. In Ryan Harper's case, kind of similar other than we just haven't seen him as long. He's been here um, the last two years. At times, has looked pretty good. He had an ERA under one as of August 15th last year. But the key point there, and we tried to make it throughout the season, was that He was pitching almost entirely in low leverage spots. And eventually, when they finally got to a point that said, "Okay, let's try him out in these high leverage spots, he had like a nine ERA over his final 15 appearances. He just wasn't cut out for it. He's not a stuff guy. He throws curveballs, like 70% curveballs, and they're slow curves. Now, it can be effective against certain hitters, but against the best hitters in the league with the game on the line, it just didn't work out. And so uh, I think you get to the end of that. And likewise, he's now eligible for arbitration. And you say is the money we'd be spending on him m- uh, worth it more than we could spend less on a rookie or somebody making close to the league minimum who could maybe do the same thing for us, or maybe somebody who has a little bit more of a future down the road. And, you know, Ryan Harper's almost 33 already. So um, he's an old inexperienced uh, pitcher as it were. So I think that's why that one happened.
1: Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned Suero being here for so long. I- I'm pretty sure if he's not already 30, he's approaching 30 and this would have been his first year of arbitration eligibility. So that's, Tells you how long he's been around with the organization. He finished the season with a 633 ERA and 1406 whip in just 42 and two-thirds innings. And his patent move was the cutter, and he never seemed to fully get full control of that cutter. It would be really good at times, and it would be very erratic at other times and not being able to command the strike zone with that pitch that he worked so hard to develop and and was kind of his calling card. Um, And then, like you said, for Harper, almost 33 years old, 34 years old, um, not using high leverage situations. His ERA finishes at 404 with this uh, 1178 whip at the end of the season, and just 35 and two-thirds innings. So, both guys, especially with Wander Suero, finishing the season at Rochester, kind of the writing on the wall that he was kind of going to be done with this organization as the season turned. Let's quickly talk about Mike Ford real quick, because I think this is an interesting point that you actually retweeted at Mark Zuckerman on Twitter yesterday. Yes, he was a minor league non-tender, so that doesn't affect the 40-man roster, but Someone pointed out that usually that's the case that it's open to the possibility of him re-signing with that club with on another minor league deal uh, and, and now is no longer a part of the 40-man roster but then will be continue to be a part of the organization because he was a midsummer claim um, from the Yankees and spent the entire rest of the season at Rochester, never debuting with the Nationals at any point of the season. Is that a possible route the Nats could take with Mike Ford?
0: Yeah, so we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, yeah. but for <laughs> those who don't really know how it works, and, and I honestly hadn't even thought about this because it's not a situation I've seen. Typically non-tendered players are those who are going into arbitration. Like we said, they're being non-tendered because the team doesn't want to have to pay their salary. You don't normally see that with a minor leaguer who doesn't even have enough service time yet to be arbitration eligible. So even if Mike Ford made the roster, he'd only be making 500 something thousand dollars. Um, so you know, what's the reason there? Why would the Nats just you know release him? Well, the reason, I think it was Kevin Goldstein that tweeted this, and that's where I got it from and put it back out there, is any other time of year, if you want to try to remove somebody like that off your 40-man roster, you have to place him on waivers, which means somebody else can claim him and take him away, to what the Nationals just did in getting Lucius Fox from the Orioles. Well, this is the one day a year that you can get around that rule. If you non-tender him, now he becomes a free agent, but if you've already worked out in advance. A deal with him and say, we're going to re-sign you to a minor league deal, and now you stay in the organization, you're basically the same player in the same position that you always were, you're just not going to be on the 40-man roster anymore. And if the player agrees to that, then you go ahead and make this move. So don't be surprised if we find out that they are re-signing Mike Ford to a minor league contract and he ends up, say, as their AAA first baseman and potentially called up at some point if they need some help there. So like I said, a little bit in the weeds here, we're getting into some minor, minute stuff here. But uh, it's a situation I hadn't really ever encountered before, and I was glad that uh, Kevin Goldstein put that out there because it kind of explains why they would do something like that.
1: Yeah, we kind of talked, Amy and I discussed Mike Ford a little bit a couple weeks ago on the podcast, just because he's an interesting part on the on the roster if Ryan Zimmerman does not return. Now, we heard him talk on the radio on 106.7 The Fan with the Sports Junkies on NBC Sports Washington saying that he plans on returning right now, not fully committing to that yet, but he plans on playing again. Um, and, and Mike Rizzo's always said that he has a spot on the roster if he wants it. But if Zimmerman does not just come back, Mike Ford would be a veteran backup first baseman I'm not saying he's the absolute solution to back up Josh Bell at first base but he's another option they will they would have in the house if he resigns his minor league deal to come up and be a backup backup first baseman a a role he has played uh before with the Yankees and the Rays um so that's interesting and and, you know let's go back to let's kind of tie this all together uh to kind of the greater conversation in baseball right now Mark you know we talked about the non-tenders. Andrew Stevenson was the only player tendered a contract who has already signed so that means Juan Soto Josh Bell and Tanner Rainey and all those other guys Eric Fetty Joe Ross uh, will still have to go through a negotiation process of figuring out a, a deal for next year we talked about Hernandez signing and the two waiver claim or I guess Lucius Fox a waiver claim and uh, Richard Arena being signed to a minor league deal but all in all Mark this has been a pretty quiet offseason for the Nationals in terms of what we've seen them in the past they are not linked to the big name free agents nor did we really expect them to but we're, like you mentioned earlier, we've seen smaller market clubs rebuilding clubs, make big splashes like the Rangers, uh, the Tigers, the Mariners are in discussions um, what, is the, what is the Nationals' end game here? What's their goal here? Is it true that reports are saying that the Lerner family does not want to make too many big splashes until there is a new CBA, until they know how the roster will be constructed? Why aren't the Nationals a little more aggressive this offseason as this this CBA kind of counts down to being expired? Yeah, I think
0: it's the timing of that. Uh, They knew that December 1st was the deadline uh, for the CBA and knowing that the rules of the sport could be very different By this time that this all ends versus what they are now. And like we said, there's a reason why the teams that have been so aggressive, why those are the ones doing it. Those are the ones that are trying to get a jump start that are extremely motivated to try to win in 2022. Teams that either are trying to reach the playoffs or, like we said in the Mets case, uh, you know, trying to win big for the first time in a long time. And I don't think it's an accident. Those are the teams. You haven't really seen. Some of the usual suspects, the Yankees, the Dodgers, um, even the Giants coming off their big season, the Braves off the World Series. I mean, they've made some moves, but not the big splashes. And I think that's because they're in a little bit of a different position where they don't feel as desperate at the moment to do things. And so they're going to wait this out and see, okay, what is the state of the sport when all this ends? What are contracts going to look like? Is it now going to be structured where – Uh, Players are making more at a younger age with less experience. Is free agency going to change where now you don't need six years of service time? So that might change the way you now approach negotiations with somebody uh, moving forward. You want to know what the rules are going to be when these new contracts end. And that's why, you know, you think about Schurzer signing and Corey Seeger. I mean, these guys signing major, major contracts under these rules, and they're about to go into a whole different situation. Who knows what those contracts are going to look like within the framework of the next CDA? It's hard to really know what that's going to be. So I get why they're doing this. Now, we don't know how this is all going to play out, but I think there is a sense that that it's not going to be real short. I don't think we're looking at a week or two here, and then all of a sudden there's a new deal in place. Um, They're going to be motivated, both sides of the equation, are going to be motivated to get a new deal done once they're facing a harder deadline. And once they're facing the danger of losing games, either in spring training and ultimately the regular season. So I can foresee a scenario where this plays out through December and through January. And as spring training starts to get closer, now both sides are saying, "Okay, we're getting antsy. We want to make a deal. We need to know who our teams are. Players want to know who they're going to be playing for. And there are going to be several hundred free agents unsigned at that point who still need jobs. And it's going to be a mad scramble to sign them all. And who knows how that's all gonna work out. But the Nationals, I think when we get to that point are very much gonna be in the mix. And I think that will be the really telling thing about what are their intentions for 2022 and beyond. Are they just going for those short-term fixes like Cesar Hernandez, or do they look at that opportunity and say, there are so many free agents out there. We might be able to get somebody who can help us not just now, but actually be a part of us winning three years down the road. So maybe they do swoop in at that point with as many players that are still available. But for now, I don't think they felt like they needed to jump into the uh, mindset of, of being aggressive, given the situation they're in, and given what we're looking at with a lockout.
1: Yeah, I, I think a, lo- a major frustration for Nationals fans right now, looking at the lack of moves right now, and I think you've explained it very well as, as kind of a reasoning, and I, I would agree with you, but but again, it's you know it's not our checkbook, right? We're not the one signing these deals, So uh, and fans, like, you know, we can differ in opinion on how to approach this, but... I think the frustration is this is a major market team. The team that prides itself on having an owner that would spend money to put together a competitive team. Yes. It's the first year of a retooling or rebuilding um, of the whole franchise, but it's a team that, you know, a lot of nationals fans take pride in being competitive year in and year out, say for this last half of this season after the sell-off. And now you have this Juan Soto situation where if Many people think if you're not competitive by the time, you know, he's two years or a year away from free agency, he is a sure thing to walk out that door, especially given the Nationals track record of not signing their long term, uh, their in-house guys long term, aside from Steven Strasburg and Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, what, what would you say to fans who would be like, I, "I need something to be excited about for next season"? I know it's going to be a struggle, but w- you know we're seeing other teams that we know for a fact don't have to pay, uh, you know, the, the 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 payroll that the Nationals can't afford, and they're making big ma- market moves, and the Nationals are staying quiet.
0: Well, here's what I'd say to that, and I, and I think this is the organization's mindset as well. What we have to talk about: what is the goal for the Nationals in 2022? Is it to win as many games as possible? Is it to improve by a certain number of games? Or is it to end the year in a better position than you are right now? And how does that you think ultimately they're going to help you win big in 2023, 24, 25? I think that's what it is. So they won 65 games this year. Obviously, nobody's satisfied with that. That was their worst record in more than a decade. So you want to improve on that. But there are different paths to, say, 75 wins. You don't just go chase 75 wins and say, well, we're going to sign some big name guys who might help us win 10 more games next year. Well, that doesn't do you any good if those players aren't ultimately part of you winning real big, winning 95 games three years from now. So unless that's somebody that can you know, help you win some games now and then be traded for more prospects, then I don't think those are the kind of moves that you're really going to make. Are you going to sign somebody that's kind of middle tier two or three year deal? Yeah, they'll help you now. But if they aren't really part of that long-term solution to being part of a a contending team again, is that worth it? So I think they would almost sacrifice a few wins in 2022 to ensure that anybody that they're acquiring or that they're playing in in this next year are going to be guys who can either be part of the plan in two or three years down the road or help you a little bit right now and then be flipped for more prospects like a Cesar Hernandez. So those are the two kinds of moves you make. To make a big splash right now, just to try to win a few more games and be a more competitive team, this isn't the team that's going to contend yet. We know that. They know that. They're not one or two big signings away from being a, a challenging the Braves and the Mets for the NLE's title. That's just not the position they're in. And maybe a year from now, they could be. But to get to there, they've got to take that next step. So in my mind, don't focus so much on uh, trying to acquire players to help you win more games this year. It's about trying to acquire players who are going to help you win more games. Three years down the road, either through their own performance or by being players who can then be flipped for more prospects.
1: And on that note, I, I agree with that. And I think but to expand on that a little more, I think you're doing that because the end game has to be to keep Juan Soto. I, I think your goal right now, knowing that you're not con- can be competitive next year, assuming you're not going to be competitive in 2023. But, you know, things could change. Um I think your goal has to be keep Juan Soto happy, show him that there is a goal in sight, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that this team will be competitive and competitive for a long time before he hits free agency, and then they can do everything in their power to keep him. Because I truly believe, we're already seeing it, Mark. I'm sure you see it on the blog, on Twitter. Fans are already basically counting down the day until Juan Soto leaves. And that, to me, really can't happen because that puts this team at risk of losing a good portion of the fan base that they just spent the last decade building and that obviously resulted in a World Series championship. If you know, if I'm a young Nationals fan and I, my favorite player is Juan Soto and I have people telling me that the Nationals don't sign their guys long term, he's going to walk. Then why would I stick around and be a fan of this team knowing that my favorite players growing up are just going to leave at some point anyways? I think the end game for this team has to be make Juan Soto happy, make him want to stay here, and then eventually give him a valid, realistic offer and, and say, you did everything we possibly could to keep him. And if he decides to walk, that's his prerogative. But the National need to do everything in their power to keep Juan Soto in D.C. for the rest of, or a major por- portion of his career. And if they don't, um, I, I think that's a major failing for this team. And it could set them back a while after uh, a couple, even more years, even after this rebuild's done.
0: Yeah, look, the goal, as you kind of stated there, is you're trying to convince Juan Soto this is where he wants to be for a long time. Well, how do you do that? You don't necessarily do that by convincing him right now that the team's ready to win. You do it by convincing him that before that contract is up, they are ready to win again, maybe even winning with him again before he becomes a free agent uh, in the 2024 season. So the moves you're making right now are laying the groundwork for that. And that's why uh, in my mind, and I think in the organization's mind as well, the ultimate goal here is to be contending by 24 at the least. You would hope by 23 maybe they have a chance if everything came together, but certainly by 24 that you are winning with Juan Soto on your roster and ultimately convincing him that that's a reason to stay. Worst case scenario, you at least have one more shot at winning with him. But that's not going to happen this year. You know They're still yeah. in the early stages of this. And so to think that you're going to convince him right now that the organization is ready to win again, that would be foolish you've got to think bigger picture. And he's a smart guy. He knows how this works too. I don't think he's basing his ultimate decision on what they do this winter. He's going to be basing it on what they do next winter and the winter after that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Show him there's a plan in place and this is how we're going to go about it. And, um, and hopefully he's along for the ride. and understands that. And like you said, he's a smart guy. I'm sure he, he understands the place. I I guess my, basically my, my major concern would be like, there has to be a line of communication between ownership Rizzo Davey and Juan, just so everyone's on the same page and that this is what we're trying to do here. Stick with it because we'll, we'll be back uh, near the mountaintop in a couple of years. Just, just bear with us for a moment. Um, and, and hopefully it all works out. And then nationals fans and, and their organization and Juan will be happy uh, that he's staying here in DC, but that's going to dominate conversations for, couple of years down the line a majority of next season as well so we'll have plenty of time to talk about that last topic right real quick mark before i let you go because i know you're gotta be on the phones and covering everything going on the lockout the impending lockout tonight at midnight after the cba expires don't have to talk about which side's right which side's wrong but what does this mean for the sport in general um and what should fans expect uh over the next couple of months or however long this lockout takes uh, before new cba is in place
0: well, first of all, let's acknowledge this has been a long time coming. Right. This did not just pop up here in the last we're talking about this. Weeks. We've uh, seen this coming. Last summer. Exactly. And that was the precursor to it as they were bickering with each other over compensation for the shortened season, for the 60-game pandemic season. So you could already see them laying the groundwork then for what was going to be the bigger fight to come now. Both sides have very strong opinions on what they think the future of the sport should be. You can agree with one side or the other, whatever you want to feel about it, but here to me is ultimately uh, the key. Nobody ever wins these things outright. It's always comes down to compromise. You have to go into this and say, the goal here is to find a deal that neither side is gonna be 100% satisfied with, but at least there are aspects of it that they are satisfied with. You're not gonna win this thing, but the win is to make a deal. And the good news here is, Look, it's been 27 years since there's been a work stoppage in baseball. I was graduating high school, going into college in 1994 when the strike happened. It canceled the season, canceled the World Series, and it extended into spring training in 1995. That was catastrophic for the sport. I've Everybody feared that it would be. And it took some time, but the sport came back. It's actually in a very strong place now. They've had labor peace for a long time. Every other sport has had work stoppages since then. So this is one thing that baseball has done well, but eventually you knew that was going to catch up to them and there was going to be a need to relook at the way things are done. And now we're going to see that here. But what the experience of 94 taught everyone is that fans will come back to you, but they're not going to be willing to lose uh, the season. You know, parts of the season, they're not going to be willing to lose games that count, especially given everything else that's been going on in the world in the last few years. okay, That's just not going to fly with people to have owners and players bickering and arguing over money. So I think that is a reason to be optimistic that this will end before we get to spring trading, that both sides understand the consequences of that happening. Um, But by the same token, on December 1st, they're not going to have that motivation to get it done. There's no urgency. There's no deadline. They will feel that pressure when it does come time to get close to games. So look, I hope it happens quickly, but I, my hunch is that we're talking about, you know, six to eight weeks. And then as February 1st is approaching and spring training is around the corner and everyone starts getting antsy, that's when you'll see some real compromise being made and they will find a way to get it done. I'm not overly concerned right now that the season's in jeopardy, that spring training's in jeopardy. Uh, I think both sides understand how bad that would be for the sport and for, for each side. Um, so they've now got the time this winter, with nothing else going on, to do this and try to find some real compromise on a way that makes the game better for everyone. It's not going to be better for one side or the other. Make it better for everyone. There's a way to do this. Hopefully they will find that way.
1: Yeah, like you said, I, I think it's right now it's too early to panic. Um, but you know, once we hit February, maybe, God forbid, even March, It might be start time to get a little worried if we're not seeing. And you know, we talked about this before on podcasts before deadlines work. If you set a deadline and people get the the job done, look at what just happened with free agency. This was an unofficial uh, free agent deadline. A lot of players signed and major contracts. And that was a lot of fun for the sport. It brought the most attention to baseball in late November, early December that it probably has ever gotten in the past couple of years, decade, twenty-six years, whatever it may be. So that was a lot of fun. So deadlines work. So hopefully they figure it out. Um, And um, yeah, it looks like a lockout is impending already seeing uh, reports that as we're talking right now, that uh, um, negotiations between MLB and union reps have already stopped after a seven minute meeting and whether or not they continue that later today remains to be seen. So, Midnight tonight, possibly a lockout, a work stoppage for Major League Baseball. And uh, that means we'll have to figure out some other ways to talk about uh, because <laughs> won't be any winter meetings or any uh, uh, negotiations or uh, contract signings uh, throughout the stoppage. So, uh, Mark, good luck uh, on the website and figuring out stuff to write. If you need any help, let me know. But uh, thanks so much for stopping on the Mass and All Access podcast. Really appreciate your insight and your time. And, uh, yeah, uh, well, I guess we'll chat soon um, if there's any other breaking news in terms of this new CBA.
0: All right. Thanks, Bobby. Hey, everybody, we're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. We've had to do this a lot in the last couple of years in different aspects of our lives, shut things down and wait it out with everyone. But there will be baseball before it's all over. I promise there will be a 2022 season.
1: Yeah. If, if Nats fans need a, uh, a taste of baseball, go ahead, go down to Nash, nationals park and go through the enchanted setup that they have down there. We did that a couple of years ago and it was really nice, really getting the holiday spirit and you get a little, little fix of baseball uh, being a nationals park. So there's something you could do while this lockout is, uh, is going on, but Mark, thanks again. Check out his work on mass and of course, at Mark Zuckerman on Twitter for all the breaking news, Mark, stay safe. We'll talk, we'll chat again soon.
0: All uh, right. Good to talk to you, Bobby.
1: All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Mass and All Access Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in on the Mass and Nationals Facebook page and YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can catch the podcast after the fact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or SoundCloud, and catch us live every week. We really appreciate you guys watching and tuning in, being a part of the conversation. You can follow me at Bobby underscore Blanco on Twitter. I love chatting with you guys all season long. You can also catch some off-season work from me on massinsports.com when I cover for Mark Zuckerman while he gets some much deserved downtime big shout out to Brendan Mortensen working behind the scenes producing the show we'll be back with Amy Jennings next week uh, right here live on the on Facebook and YouTube so be sure to tune in next week and we'll chat with you then stay safe everybody enjoy the holiday season check out Enchanted at Nationals Park and we'll talk to you later